Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite Pastor Vitaly Kuchkovsky um, to come bring us the Word of God this morning. Good morning, church. It is so good to see all of you today. I am grateful that I was able to actually make it out this time when Pastor Brad originally asked me to come and preach in July. That was one week right after our vacation Bible school. And two years in a row, I got COVID right after vacation Bible school. So from now on, I should just let our elders know that I will be taking a week off after vacation Bible school. However, I know you got uh, my better counterpart with Dave Parker here on that Sunday, so I was grateful that we were still able to come and serve you through the preaching of God's Word. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Currently at our church, we're covering the Gospel of Mark, and so I thought it would be appropriate to pick up where I'll be preaching this afternoon as well in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Let me read for you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word because we believe your word is truth. We come to your word because we believe in your word is life. We come to your word because we know in your word we get to see our sin and our desperate need for a savior. And it is in your word that we see Christ, his sacrifice on our behalf. Father, I ask that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to accurately exposit the truth of the text before us today. 
I pray for the hearts of those who do not know you here today. I pray that they would see their sin, that they would see the holy, righteous Savior who died on their behalf. May they cry out to him and realize that in him alone is our hope. We ask this in your name. Amen. I hope some of you, or at least many of you, are familiar with the work of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if there's any spoiler alerts, I hope by now you are familiar with that. Same with Titanic, it sinks, in case you're wondering. <laughs> in his work, C.S. Lewis, interestingly enough, takes a really long time to introduce us to the lion himself. In case if you were just to look at the title, you would think that the lion would be the first main character to receive the introduction. Yet it is the wardrobe that we find out about right from the beginning in chapter 1. And it is in chapter 2 that we already learn about the great white witch. However, in chapter 3, no mention of the lion. In chapter 4, 5, 6, no mention of the lion at all. It is only in chapter 7 of C.S. Lewis's book that the children actually learn of his name, Aslan. And it is only in chapter 8 that Beaver begins to give the children more details. We learn that Aslan is a king and that he is, as children would ask, is he safe? Safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. So the children heard of this lion. They saw his work. They even noticed how the great white witch reacted to the mention of his name, yet not till the closing portion of C.S. Lewis's book do we actually get to see the lion. We see that in chapter 12, for the first time, the children come face to face with Aslan. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children did not know what to do or say when they saw him. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet, and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing at all. This wonderful description of the first encounter of the children seeing the lion face to face, in essence, changed their life forever. They were both in awe, amazed and terrified and quiet, not knowing what to say. However, the encounter today that the disciples have witnessed in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark is even more amazing than the encounter the children had with Aslan. Because here, they, the disciples, have spent many years with Jesus. They saw his miracles, his work. They saw how even the demons and unclean spirits reacted to the mention of his name. Yet here on the mountain for the first time, they saw Jesus unlike they have ever seen him before. The transfiguration offered an event that left the disciples both in awe and terrified. 
It is an event that is so hard to put into words. Yet it is an event that teaches us so much about Jesus and what he came to do on this earth. And therefore, I have divided uh, our time here this morning in the text into two sections. First, I want to see the exposition of the text. I want to walk verse by verse and see the richness of what is presented here in Mark's account. And secondly, we'll conclude this morning by looking at the application. What does the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ teach us about our salvation and our sanctification and in our walk with the Lord today? So let's begin with verse 1. We see here there's a certain prediction that takes place in verse 1, and many people don't know what to do with this verse. In fact, if you look in your Bible, some of your Bibles put verse 1 as connecting to the previous chapter and connecting to the previous section, and then some of your Bibles begin the transfiguration account in verse 2 altogether. And therefore, the prediction mentioned here in verse 1, that Jesus is telling them that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What was Jesus referring to? What is he talking about when he says that? The clue comes from the Greek word that is used for kingdom, the basileia there, is translated as the royal splendor or the royal power. It does not talk about the physical kingdom itself. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 1 to his disciples, following the great testimony of Peter at the end of chapter 8, that you are the Christ, and then Jesus' pronouncement that the Son of Man must suffer, and then Peter rebuking him, and then Jesus rebuking Peter, and after this account, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not die until they see the royal splendor, the royal splendor come in power. A lot of the commentators come to the agreement that what is actually mentioned by this prediction is that Jesus is saying that there's coming a special event. And some of you disciples in this event will get to see the royal splendor of the Son of Man. And it is no surprise that in verse 2, Jesus, uh, Mark tells us, and after six days. This is very unusual. For those of you who study the Gospel of Mark, he rarely gives specific dates or specific transitions. Mark usually loves his favorite word, and immediately, and right away, something took place. But here, Mark is being very specific to further highlight that the event of the transfiguration is connected to the prediction shown to us in verse 1. And just as predicted, Jesus took three of his disciples. He took Peter and James and John and led them up to the mountain by themselves. Luke tells us in his gospel account that the purpose of going to that mountain was for Jesus to pray. Jesus was praying on that mountain, and while he was praying, we are told that he was transfigured before them. What is this transfigured? What does it mean? The Greek word for transfigured is metamorpho. That's where we get our scientific term for metamorphosis. Jesus was 
his appearance was drastically changed, transformed right in front of them. Mark tells us that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could, according to ESV, bleach him. I'm sure they didn't have bleach in the time of Jesus, but the scene was so unique and sobering for Mark that he didn't know how else to describe the utter whiteness uh, and intense uh, radiance of the clothes of Jesus. Matthew, in his account, says, says that his clothes became white as the light. Luke described that he said his clothing became dazzling white. However, it wasn't just the clothing, the clothing of Jesus that was transfigured. We also see that his face changed in appearance as well. Luke 9.29 tells us the appearance of his face was altered. Matthew 17.2 tells us, and his face shone like the sun. Here was Jesus before his disciples, still recognizable enough for them to know that it was Christ, yet appeared to them in a way that they have never seen him before. Daniel Aiken in his commentary says that transfiguration reveals Jesus' true essence in an outward visible manifestation. For a brief moment, our Lord's true identity is allowed to shine forth in all its glory. Here is the Christ they will see when he triumphantly comes the second time to establish his universal kingdom. Kent Hughes also in his commentary says, For a brief moment the veil of his humanity was lifted, and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory which was always in the depth of his being rose to the surface, and that for one time in his earthly life. This event was unique in so many ways. Jesus coming on this earth, humbling himself, coming in a human form, now for the first time ever, gives a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the coming attractions, if you will, of what his glorious estate will be, what his glorious appearance is, and he was transfigured before them. Now, if the event simply ends there, that in itself was probably enough for the disciples to write about. That in itself is probably enough for the disciples to worship him forever, getting a glimpse of the very glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, they sure quickly realized that they were not there by themselves. Someone else was present there. Mark tells us that Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus. Now, that raises two questions right away. First, why Moses and Elijah? After all, there could have been so many other options that God could have selected in this event of transfiguration. Why Moses and Elijah? And the second question that we will try to figure out is, if they were talking about something, wouldn't it be neat to know what they were actually talking about? So let's try to figure out why Moses and Elijah. While we're not given an exact answer, it is clear for us from the Old Testament and from the Old Testament tradition that both of Moses and Elijah actually were on the mountaintop and got a glimpse of the glory of God before. We know that to be true about Moses 
and to be true about Elijah. You see, Moses was the representation of the law, and Elijah was the representative of the prophets. And therefore, in Moses and Elijah, you have both the law and the prophets testifying to the very nature of the Lord Jesus Christ standing there in his glory. The earthly mission of Moses was to point to the one to come. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that God will raise up a prophet for you and you are to do what? You would do well to listen to him. And the very mission of, uh, of Elijah was as well to point to the Messiah, to the Deliverer. And now both the representative of the law and representative of the prophets are now standing near a transfigured Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine trying to be a, a fly on the tree, perhaps, near this event? To try to figure out what they were talking about? Thankfully, we don't have to imagine. Luke, in his account, actually tells us what Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about. We look at Luke chapter 9, verses 30 through 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, the topic of conversation with Moses and Elijah and Jesus was the very cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The topic of conversation with Moses and Elijah and Jesus is his coming death. His, the exact Greek word there for departure is exodus. The topic was about his exodus that is about to take place in Jerusalem, his death. How wonderful and telling is this conversation to us that the central focus of all glory and heaven was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of their conversation with the transfigured Jesus was his death going to the cross. While the disciples were trying to figure out how the, the Messiah is going to come and defeat the Romans and give him reign here and free Israel, the theme and the, the goal that Jesus is trying to show him, the Messiah came to redeem. He came to die for the sins of many. And therefore the discussion between Moses and Elijah and Jesus was one of the cross. That was the focus and the purpose of the coming of our Lord and going to Jerusalem. This is now the destination in this half of his earthly ministry. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This then also brings us to the petrification, if you will, in verses 5 and 6. The only thing that could have ruined that wonderful and glorious moment was Peter talking. Here is Jesus transfigured appearing to them like they have never seen him before. Here is Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, and the topic of their conversation is his glory, the cross, and the impending death, and Peter has to say something. We read in verse 5, Rabbi, 
It is so good here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We learn a few things from Peter's comments. First, Peter simply getting a glance realized that it was good to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. That small glimpse of glory, that small foretaste of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ immediately made Peter realize that it is good to be there. However, we also realize that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Verse 6 tells us in our passage that, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. His comments were done not because he actually thought about what he was saying, but more out of fear. I don't know if you ever had those experiences where you met a famous person and you didn't know what to say, and then you blubber something foolish, and then you regret it for the rest of your life. That is pretty much what happens here with Peter. His nervous impulse is to just say something without actually thinking what he's saying. For an offering to make tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, Peter is putting Moses and Elijah on the same level with Jesus. But that is not the case. For only Jesus was transfigured. Not Moses, not Elijah. Luke also gives us a little glimpse into this. that that He says that Peter said this as he saw them departing. Perhaps the reason why Peter wanted to make three tents and to stay there, and by the way, notice, Peter didn't care about the disciples. He just wanted to make three tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And as he saw them leaving, according to Luke, he made the suggestion because Peter wanted to prolong this mountaintop experience. He didn't want it to end. He didn't want it to come to conclusion. There's something frightful in these words of Peter. Because once again, just a few verses earlier in chapter 8, when Jesus told him that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die, Peter's first reaction was to rebuke Jesus. Peter didn't comprehend yet that the purpose of the Messiah was to die. The Messiah came to suffer Glorification and rain comes after that. But Peter didn't want to have any part of that. And therefore, whether he was actually referring to the Feast of Tabernacles or maybe the actual dwelling place, some kind of tent for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, in offering that, Peter is trying to delay the very journey to the cross that Jesus was trying to accomplish. Peter wanted the glory of Christ without the death of Christ. And we do not participate in his glory unless someone dies in our place. If someone acts as our mediator on our behalf. Now, if this event in itself was not already wonderful and amazing and awe-inspiring, we get the declaration and the affirmation affirmation of God himself in verses seven, six, uh, 7 and 8. There we read, 
and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Peter's request gets immediately denied by the very voice of God. And the cloud overshadowed them. Edmund Hebert says this was the Shekinah, the glory cloud, symbolizing the very presence of God, which led the Israelites and rested on the tabernacle. This was the same glory cloud that covered Mount Sinai when Moses went to see God and on the mountain and to speak with him. When God spoke at the baptism, his words were directed to Jesus. You are my beloved son. Yet now when God speaks here on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's speaking to the disciples. He's telling them, this is my beloved son. You would do well to listen to him. This reality is further highlighted by the fact that after God's, after God's words, the cloud goes away and the disciples are simply left looking at Jesus. The testimony of God that this is my beloved son, listen to him. Notice God didn't say listen to Moses. Notice God didn't say listen to Elijah. God was showing to them the importance of listening to the son of God. God sets Jesus apart from Moses and Elijah. They were just servants whose life mission was to point to him. Now he is here before you. Listen to him. And then when God spoke these things, and then when the cloud was removed, the disciples are left only with Jesus. Further illustrated the need to listen to him. This command further confirms the words of Jesus to his disciples about his necessity of suffering. God wanted to affirm through the transfiguration event to the disciples that Jesus Christ came to die and to suffer on their behalf. Kent Hughes says Jesus is the ultimate expression of truth. Peter, James, and John were to listen to what Jesus said about the necessity of his death and of their embracing the paradox of the cross. So now we come to verses 9 and 10, the prohibition. The prohibition there is that after this wonderful event, one would think, surely, now they have seen the, the glimpse of the glory of Christ, this is a wonderful time to send them out. This is a wonderful time to just set them loose and have them go testify and shout it from the mountaintops that this is in fact Jesus. We saw him with Moses and Elijah. He was transfigured and we even heard the voice of God. What a wonderful message that would be. What a wonderful testimony it would be. But Jesus tells them once again, as they were coming down, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man comes. Jesus Christ prohibited his disciples from speaking multiple times in the gospel account. The reason for that is because their eyes were still not fully open. Still in their mind, they did not comprehend the necessity of Jesus' death. 
In their mind, they wanted a reigning Messiah, but they couldn't understand how his death fits into that. This reality is further highlighted in verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. They were not shocked by the, the very topic of, being, of rising from the dead. They saw Lazarus rise from the dead. They saw Jairus' daughter rise from the dead. So they weren't surprised by that. They were surprised how rising from the dead had anything to do with Jesus. In their mind, they didn't understand why Messiah needed to be risen from the dead if he was already here with them. That means they also didn't comprehend how his death fits into this. That is why Peter rebuked Jesus just a few, war, a few verses ago when he mentioned that he has to die. You see, a gospel message without the death of Christ is no gospel message at all. And therefore, Jesus strictly prohibits them from sharing this to anyone until when? Until after his resurrection. The gospel message is complete after the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is then becomes the good news. You don't have the good news if Christ doesn't die. You don't have the good news if Christ is not risen. What makes the gospel truly a wonderful news that needs to be proclaimed, is shared, is that he came, suffered, was rejected, died, defeated death, and then rose on the third day. That's the message that we need to proclaim. Unfortunately, so often today, people try to soften the words of the gospel by removing the necessity of death. Because in their minds, they think that was too harsh. In their minds, they think that our sin doesn't deserve such a harsh punishment. But Jesus was very clear that the message of the gospel should not be proclaimed until after death and resurrection both occur. That brings us now to the conclusion of our text in verses 11 through 13. For the disciples were further confused. Not only were they confused about what he meant by the resurrection, but they are now also confused about what does this have to do with Elijah? For they knew that Malachi uh, prophesied that, Behold, in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they knew that Elijah had to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord's coming. So in their asking, they're trying to figure out, didn't we just see Elijah? Surely you don't have to suffer, Jesus. Elijah already came. Maybe he will take your place and suffer on your behalf. James Edwards in his commentary says, The question, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come, is a leading question. The intention of which is to suggest that Elijah's return to restore all the things should remove the need of the Son of Man to go to the cross. They thought that perhaps since they just saw Elijah, and if it is his job to come before the great day to restore the things for Israel, isn't it Elijah's job to suffer? You don't have to go to the cross, Lord. Once again, time and time again, the disciples were blinded in their spiritual sight. 
They didn't understand that in order for true restoration, not just restoration of Israel, but restoration of sin to take place, the perfect Lamb of God needed to die on their behalf. And further, Jesus is trying to show them that the Elijah that Malachi was talking about was not the prophet Elijah, but it was actually John the Baptist. In Matthew 17, 13, we, t- we are told, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, who indeed came and was the forerunner before Christ, and he indeed had to suffer. And so Jesus is telling them, if my forerunner suffered on your behalf, if he died for the spread of, the, of this gospel news, why do you think that the Son of Man can walk away from it? In fact, that is the very thing that John the Baptist testified to. The Lamb of God comes, and it must die on their behalf. Sinclair Ferguson says the following, this section underlines a theme we have already noticed running through Mark's gospel. They had been guilty of interpreting the scriptures in terms of traditions they had heard and their own ideas. Now almost daily it seems as though Jesus was showing them things in the scriptures they had been blinded to before. So now comes the question, what does this have to do with us today. The transfiguration is definitely an awesome and awe-inspiring event that forever changed the disciples' understanding, that forever confirmed to the disciples that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. They saw the prophet, the law and the prophets testify to it. They heard the voice of God testify to it. They, they were uh, there. They heard the very voice of God come from heaven. What does that have to do with us today? How do we apply the things mentioned here? I have three applications for us as we close this morning. First, it shows us the care and the mercy of our Savior towards his disciples. I want you to realize something, that the transfiguration event, in my opinion, based on my study of Scripture, was designed and intended to serve the disciples. After what they just heard, after Jesus letting them know that he needed to suffer, to be rejected and to die, Jesus doesn't just leave them there, but he takes them with them to the mountain to affirm, to confirm the very words that he just spoke to them. Perhaps some of them were discouraged. Perhaps some of them were still confused. Perhaps some of them were wondering, is he the one? He keeps talking about dying, but we thought that the Messiah should not die. Messiah is to come and to rescue. And so by taking them to the mountain with him, Jesus cares for their souls. He cares for their hearts. He wants them to know that, yes, indeed, it is my job to do what I told you to do. Highwall Jones, in his book on the Transfiguration, says, So what the Transfiguration was designed to teach them was that the one whom they rightly confessed to be Christ, the Son of the living God, was going to die, not in spite of who he was, but because of who he was. 
that transfiguration was there to serve the disciples, to care for them, and to further prepare them for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And further, I want you to see the grace that was extended to the disciples by the transfiguration event. After all, do you remember what Jesus and Peter just went through six days ago? It is told that Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus mentioned to him the cross. It's not that Peter didn't just like the idea of it. Peter sternly disagreed with Christ. He tried to change his mind about going to the cross. And Jesus, turning to his disciples, making sure that they were all watching, said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Just days after Peter was used as an instrument of Satan to try to dissuade Christ from going to the cross, you know what Jesus does? Does he put Peter in timeout? Does he tell Peter, you know what, go to the doghouse. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. I don't want to have you around me. He brings him with the three disciples. He specifically picks Peter, who needed the encouragement and the mercy shown so that he would see the transfigured Christ. That is the love and care of our Savior. That even on the days when we have doubt, even on the days when we allow the enemy to to dissuade us, to discourage us, God doesn't just say, okay, you failed, stay there, go in the corner and mourn. No, he takes us with us, points to himself, reveals his glory, has the testimony of the Father through his word, further affirm and encourage. We see the wonderful mercy of our Savior, for the transfiguration was an event designed for the disciples and in a way for Peter specifically to be restored and affirmed. Further, the second thing that I want us to see for our application today is that the transfiguration reminds us of the importance of listening to God. Remember, that was the very command given by God on the mountain. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It is always interesting for me to read how the disciples later on in their ministry have described this event. And so we get the testimony of Peter in 2 Peter. If you want to turn there, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Here is Peter towards the end of his life, imprisoned, is being questioned by the false teacher saying, he keeps testifying you that Jesus is coming. He wrote to you one letter. Now he's writing to you a second letter. And yet Jesus is not coming back yet. Why are you believing him? Why do you keep listening to him? Why are you trusting these words of God? And guess what event Peter used as confirmation of the words of God. So we read in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's interpretation of that event further solidified to him the truth of God's word. That event served as a life-changing time in Peter's life to confirm to him the truth of God's word. He heard it. He says, I was eyewitness, and you can even say he was an ear witness as well. For he not only seen the Christ configured, he not only seen the Shekinah glory of the cloud around them as God spoke, but he also heard. He heard God. He heard Moses and Elijah and Jesus discussing the cross. And therefore, he says, I have full assurance that the word of God is true. And finally, I want to conclude with a final application today. The transfiguration of Christ makes our transformation possible. Here's what I mean by that. As I mentioned to you already, the Greek word for transfiguration is metamorphio, and that Greek word is only used four times in New Testament, twice referring to Jesus and twice referring to believers. When it refers to Jesus, the word is trans, uh, translated as transfigured. When it, refers to, when it refers to Christ, it is translated as transfigured. When it refers to believers, it's translated as transformed. There's something unique here that the transfigured Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, who came and humbled himself as a human, who were just like us, who was tempted in every way like us, who came in human form. I noticed this morning in your Sunday school, you guys were going through uh, Jesus being our mediator. In order for him to be the rightful mediator, he had to be like us fully. And yet, he also had to be fully God. And therefore, his transfiguration, going from being fully like us, and then through his death and his sacrifice on the cross, being glorified by God, being transfigured, that also makes our transfiguration possible. For we needed a new heart. We were once dead in our sins and trespasses. We are walking in accordance to our prince of the power of the air. And because of Christ's death, because he was transfigured for us, we are able to now, through his death and sacrifice, be transformed. That's not only true in our regeneration and in our justification, but it's also true in our sanctification. In 2 Corinthians 3.18 we read, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being metamorphosed. 
the same Greek word, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In our sanctification, when we look to Christ, when we look to the Word of God, we, in our image, are being transformed into His likeness. His transfiguration makes our transformation, makes our sanctification possible. Further on in Romans 12, too, the same Greek word is used. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Motomorpho, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And brothers and sisters, that is not also the end of the story. For Jesus' transfigured state that the disciples saw gave them, to quote Daniel Aiken, a foretaste of the coming attractions. That is Jesus that we will see in glory. His transfiguration, our justification, our regeneration, and our sanctification points to the reality that one day we'll also be glorified with him. We'll be transformed into that eternal glory which we could only dream of here on this earth. Made possible only because the Son of Man did not simply come to be on this earth, but he came to suffer to die and be resurrected on our behalf. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus in whom our hope is fixed. There is no Savior like him. There is no other Savior. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account of the transfiguration, for it points us to your care and mercy for your disciples for your children. For just as Peter, we often question and are confused, and yet you do not leave us be. You continually care, and you point us to your word. You point to the Father's testimony to affirm and encourage and strengthen us. Thank you that through this account, we're once again reminded about the importance of listening to you. Father, we live in the world where everyone is fighting for the attention of our ears, and yet we are commanded in scriptures to listen to your Son. And finally, Father, thank you that his transfiguration made our transformation and our salvation possible. For if he did not come in human form to die on our behalf, we would have no mediator to represent us before the Father. We would have no Savior who can die in our behalf. Thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you yet. I pray that your spirit would take their hearts of stone, give them a new heart, give them eyes to see, give them ears to hear, so that they might come to know you as the Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you, Vitali. Please stand. Our song in response to the preaching of the word is Christ, our hope in life and death. And um, the lyrics are in the insert. <laughs>